SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing show number eight with guest Adam Mechanic. Adam Mechanic is a database-focused software engineer, writer, and speaker based in Boston, Massachusetts. He has implemented SQL Server for a variety of high-availability online transactional processing and large-scale data warehouse applications. and also specializes in .NET access layer performance optimization. He's a Microsoft Most Valuable Professional MVP for SQL Server and a Microsoft Certified Professional. Adam is the co-author of Pro SQL Server 2005, published by A-Press. So, welcome, Adam. Thank you. Uh, I was fortunate enough, uh, while I was away at the, the past conference in Dallas uh, a few weeks back, I uh, got to meet up with Adam, and uh, one of the things I got to see was the session uh, that he presented, and I thought I'd get him along today to sort of talk about uh, the, the things that were covered in that. But maybe first up, Adam, if you just... Uh, fill us in on how, how you ever came to be involved with SQL Server in the first place. Well, when I graduated from college, I had studied uh, philosophy and computer science in college, kind of focused on logic in the philosophy area, and I went out into the real world searching for a job, as graduates often do. Yes. And uh, first thing I landed was a web development job, and uh, it was actually kind of a one-man project. I had to do everything, all the web development, all the database work, everything. And I soon discovered I hated web development, but I fell in love with the database because of all the logic there and how a database is really just you know, first-order logic as applied to data management. So mm-hmm. it just What sort of tools were you using for What sort of tools were you using for web development at the time? It was uh, actually ASP development, uh, mm-hmm. early ASP. I don't remember what the version was at this point, um, but just Notepad. <laughs> yeah. So uh, pretty, pretty uh, stripped down, I think you could say. But I mm. found the database to be something I could really grasp and kind of fall in love with. So uh, that's what I did, and from there I, I moved on to a few jobs as a database engineer and. Here I am today. So excellent. Still working. With so where did you first strike SQL Server? Uh, in that first job, actually, um, mm-hmm. we were originally doing Access, and uh, found that Access wasn't scaling to meet the needs of the product. So since it was a Microsoft shop, the natural choice was to switch into SQL Server. So just learned it from there. Excellent. When, actually, I'm interested when you're uh, saying you're finding that access wasn't scaling. Uh, there's, there's always a sort of constant discussion where people are saying, you know, what, what is it about access that makes it not suitable maybe for, for uh, 
larger applications. What what are your feelings as to the the real issues there? Well, I don't think it's so much larger applications. I've actually had some more experience with Access since that first job. And the real problem, as I see it, is that Access is not designed with concurrency in mind. It's really mm-hmm. designed as a single user uh, or maybe a couple of users, small-scale database system for a single application or a single thread. And I've actually seen an Access application that someone tried to port to SQL Server unsuccessfully uh, that was actually performing better in Access than it did when they ported it over to SQL Server because it was really a very specialized single-user application, which is really what Access is meant for. Um, SQL Server is meant for concurrency in multiple users hitting it at once. So in some cases, Access is better. Yeah, I must have been... I've, I've come across that myself as well. There, there, I've seen a few situations where people had... Uh, uh, very much single-user applications where they were tending to sort of read a whole lot of data sequentially and, and yeah, no real concurrency and things involved. And in sort of raw speed, Access was actually very, very good for that sort of thing. Um, but but as soon as you start throwing more than one user and so on into the mix, it, uh, it it's, it's a very different story. And I, I think the, the thing that I look at that I think uh, makes a big difference is... Uh, I, I love the fact that at least in, in products like SQL Server and above, you, you have a process which is saying, look, I'll be responsible for the integrity of the database as well, uh, rather than with something like Access. I mean, you've got every individual client being responsible for the integrity of the database. Right. And the other thing with Access, uh, when people try to upsize from an Access installation into a SQL Server installation, is they don't realize that access is half database and half user interface. And yeah. a lot of people don't don't really understand when they're trying to upsize that SQL Server is no user interface at all. So they try and turn mm-hmm. Enterprise Manager into the user interface. They're using uh, the table editing features and going in and asking questions on the forums. Why can't I see all my data in Enterprise Manager? And... I think this causes a lot of problems, kind of misconception about what SQL Server is compared to Access. Yeah. So what version of SQL Server were you first involved with? 6.5. 6.5, yeah. What, what were your thoughts on the product or um, at the time? The, the, I suppose compared the thing I'm sort of prompting, I, I thought it needed a lot of management compared to now. I think so. Um, I wouldn't say that I knew anything about management at the time. So I was really trying to develop. I I didn't know anything about databases at all, actually. I was Mm. just kind of thrown in. I'm going to write this app. And uh, so I did a lot of reading and just did as well as I could. And actually uh, probably didn't do anything right. So... It wasn't probably until sometime later when I was on 7.0 doing some real development on a real team with people who actually knew what they were doing that I figured out what was going on. So at that Mm. point, I'd say I was about as uh, naive as possible. And I I can't even comment. (laughs) That's all right. What I'm interested in, well, in the first of the topics that you are covering in the session at the, uh, the past conference, 
uh, was stored procedures as APIs. And uh, so maybe if we could start there. Yeah, I think this is an interesting topic um, and kind of a religious debate in the database community, which um, you often see this debate, should I use store procedures or should I use ad hoc SQL to uh, access my data from my application? And oftentimes when you see these discussions and these debates, it always goes to performance. Everyone's debating store procedures can perform better. No, I can make ad hoc SQL perform better in these cases, blah, blah, blah. Well, I don't even want to get performance involved in this conversation because for me, this is actually a, a very central software development question. It's one of coupling. And when we talk about coupling, we refer to two systems, and two systems or two components are said to be tightly coupled if one component which uses the other one relies on the other too much. And for me, ad hoc SQL couples the application tightly to the database. It gives the application knowledge of tables and uh, column names and, and other and schema in the database. And this means that if you change something in the database, you have to go back and change the application. Now, if you use store procedures, you create a layer of indirection between the application and the database. All the application knows about is the interface exposed by the store procedure. So if you change something in the database, if you change a table name or if you change the schema in some way, or if you want to change the query for performance purposes, for instance, as long as that store procedure still takes the same parameters as inputs and still outputs the same columns in the same formats, the application doesn't need to change at all. So you've now decoupled the two. You can change one without changing the other. So this gives you a lot of freedom and a lot of flexibility to work with. So in my opinion, on that debate, there's no question. Store procedures for everything, yeah. or maybe views in some case. Mm-hmm. What, what, what's your thoughts with... Um the, the fact that we can now expose stored procedures as web services um, in SQL Server 2005, uh, again, from the performance point of view, people would look and say, well, look, exposing any of this as SOAP uh, is, tends to be a lot slower way of doing things. But one of the things that sort of intrigues me about the idea is at least it's now a contract-based interface. Uh, one of the questions that people ask all the time with stored procs is they say, look, is there any way I can find out uh, programmatically against a stored proc what the values are or uh, what data it might return? And one of the problems with a stored proc is, is the fact that it's really up to the logic of the proc uh, as, as to what sort of values are actually going to get returned. And and you could take different code paths in the proc and and get different things come back where at least with a something where if, when we start heading down the web services path you've got a sort of programmatically discoverable contract as well if, have you got any thoughts there that's uh, pretty interesting actually and it's something i talk about in that talk when i'm discussing store procedures as apis is that developers should always have a single set of inputs and a single set of outputs because mm-hmm. that's how Anytime you 
uh, anytime you discuss design by contract and those kind of software development questions, these are this is always what you hear. You need to have consistency in your in your interfaces. And so I think that being able to enforce that is very interesting, but this is something that developers should be doing anyway with store procedures. Yeah. I think you oftentimes see shops where they're passing column names in, a list of column names, or some other list of uh, maybe you have three different applications that all need slightly different result sets in slightly different formats. So they set up these huge complex store procedures that take you know a million different parameters and it's impossible to test, and the only person who knows how to fix the thing is in Colombia on vacation, and, you know, it's a mess. Or not coming back. Yeah. Right. Well, if they're in Colombia. Mm. <laughs> so, I mean, this is just what I'm, what I'm trying to push DBAs towards is writing testable code and actually considering database code to be code. I think that's a major problem in a lot of shops I've seen. Uh, they have this attitude of, well, as long as we're, we're just changing a store procedure, we're not changing anything. Well, you are changing mm. something. You're changing the code that drives the data. And if it's a data-driven application, that's very important code. That's the code that runs the application. Yeah. Uh, I think that that attitude might be changing in some shops, but I, I still see a lot of shops that aren't even using source control for their database yeah. code for store procedures and that scares me so actually what uh, which source could uh, control systems have you found useful for stored procs yourself well obviously the free one from Microsoft well I don't think it's actually free but uh, mm. visual source safe is obviously very popular and very easy to use uh, no big deal I really like a source control system that's not very well known. It's called AccuRev, A-C-C-U-R-E-V. And I think that that's the most amazing source control system I've ever seen. It's uh, all hmm. screen-based. And they have um, this totally different idea of how to do source control. And they have this model where every change you do creates automatically under the covers a new branch. And so you can have lots of people working simultaneously on the same code, and it branches everything automatically, and then when you're ready to deploy, re-merges everything almost automatically for you. And it's just really, really cool source control system. I wish they had mm-hmm. a lot more people using it so that they could keep uh, making it a little better. So I think they're, they're doing pretty well, though, at this point. Yeah, at least with uh, SQL Server 2005 in the... Uh, the new management studio, there, there is a degree of uh, the ability to integrate with source code control systems, but uh, I think that's still been one of the, the, the main missing areas in the product is uh, some sort of deep integration with, with source code control. Yeah, I agree. I also think a lot of the problem is, again, that attitude about how to do source control. Um, there's a product called DB Ghost for instance, it's been pretty popular. Mm-hmm. And dbghost will actually go out and detect changes in the database and automatically check them in for you. And a lot of people I talk to think this is a great idea. We'll go make our changes using Enterprise Manager or whatever, and then dbghost will go figure out what's there and check it into source control. Well, I think that's a horrible idea 
personally, not mm. to say anything bad about DB Ghost Company, who is probably going to be yeah. suing me right after this uh, interview. <laughs> but um, in my opinion, the correct order of operations is that you check a known piece of code out from a source control repository, make your change, verify your change, and then you knowingly check it back in and promote it to uh, testable code. If yeah. you have a piece of software automating this process for you, you don't know what you're getting because someone might have gone in and made a change in the database for testing purposes. Mm-hmm. That's one of the problems with uh, working with databases from a development standpoint is that anyone can go in and alter anything that they have access to, and you won't know about it. Not like compiling a, an application where you'd find out about it because dependencies have been broken. So mm. people need to control it themselves, not rely on SQL Server or a third-party product to kind of hack the source control, if you will. Yeah. Actually, the, the dependency one is sort of interesting because one of the uh, the areas, again, that um, I, I wish there was an option to get around in SQL Server is uh, uh, things like the deferred name resolution, the... Uh, the fact that I, I can come up with a, an, an incorrectly spelled name of something, for example, and and it's not going to pick that up at the point I uh, create or um, uh, create the proc. It's it's going to sort of assume that that's some name that it just doesn't know about yet. Uh, I, I really wish there was some option to turn off the sort of deferred name resolution and be able to say, look, you know, please. You know, I suppose compile is probably not necessarily the right word for the proc, but at least go through and not just check the syntax. I actually want you to do object name resolution as well. Do you ever sort of run into problems in that? Mm. Oh, all the all the time because I don't understand, and I've asked the SQL Server team to implement this as well. And I recommend everyone listening to write to SQLWish at Microsoft.com. <laughs> yes, that's SQLWish yes. at Microsoft.com, yeah. They can do it for views, right? Mm. As a matter of fact, you have to do it for views. And they can do it for user-defined functions, but they can't do it for store procedures. Um, I, I realize that dynamic SQL and other things like that might play a role in making it more difficult. But for anything non-dynamic, I don't understand why it can't be done. Yeah. So, I don't know. That's great. Yeah, well, certainly, yeah. I mean, it's just another layer of things that can cause problems at runtime. But uh, actually, which leads us into um, another topic that you were discussing in your session uh, was exception handling in SQL Server. And uh, obviously, pleased with the options that are now available in 2005 compared to what we had before. Oh, yeah, the try-catch syntax is amazing uh, compared to what we had before. Before, in SQL Server 2000, you can't catch an error. You can't handle an error. Um, If an error occurs, the application is going to hear about it because it's going to bubble up, and there's nothing Mm -hmm. you can do about it. You can... All you can do, pretty much, is you can check to see if you've gotten an error and maybe roll back the transaction. Well, in 2005, suddenly you can catch the error, you can do something about it if you you have something intelligent that you can do. I don't know if if you do or not. (laughs) That depends on Mm. the situation. 
But if you do, you can. You can keep the application from knowing about it. And this, again, leads to the encapsulation that I was talking about before. The application, yeah. let's say you have a deadlock. Uh, I think a deadlock's a great example. And, it is. Uh, I think it's a superb example. Yeah. So sometimes I've seen code in an application where they know that there's some code, uh, there's some SQL prone to deadlocking. So they'll put a retry logic in the application. Well, once again, this couples the application to the store procedure because the application has to watch for this certain exception and knows, oh, if I get this exception, I need to retry again, you know, a couple times, and eventually we get past the deadlock. Mm -hmm. Well, now you can actually put that in the store procedure. The store procedure can just loop with a try-catch block a few times or however many times you want to program it, and the application will never know that anything went wrong. All the application will know yeah. is I passed in some parameters, got back some data, or whatever. So yeah. I think it's great. Yeah, I think uh, deadlock's a good one because that's right. It was one of those sort of non-trappable errors um, in uh, up to SQL Server 2000. The uh, in fact, it's one of the things that I find um, invariably. Uh, I think there are a number of things that people need to write code to handle. Um, uh, there are various sort of errors that can be dealt with in code. And I'm um, always sort of disappointed to see that bubble up to the user <laughs> uh, in, instead of being caught. The, uh, I, I think deadlocks are one example of that. Uh, and in, in fact, it's also a good example of why I think uh, you've also got to trap all the error messages. Uh, because again, the error message from the deadlock, the one that you know tells the user they've been chosen as a deadlock victim, doesn't uh, particularly go down all that well with end users if they manage to end up seeing that. Well, that's very true. It's also important from a security standpoint to never show end users the errors uh, that are generated in the database layer uh, in, order yep. to, uh, in order to protect against SQL injection attacks and things of that nature. If you start showing errors, uh, experienced hackers will be able to exploit them and attack your system. So. Yeah. Anyone who's showing the user the raw error is, is just asking for trouble anyway. Yeah. Plus also, I mean, a lot of them look silly. I mean, uh, things like unexpected error or, or worse, you know, catastrophic <laughs> error. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of uh, heart attack material for an end user anyway. I, I think they, all, all that sort of stuff has to be caught and, uh, and, and turned into some sort of, or translated to something more pleasant for the user anyway, so. Yes. No, that's great. The, uh, actually, the other sort of errors that uh, I, saw, I suppose the, the other thing that sort of looked ugly, I think, before uh, is that if you the only thing you had was the sort of an, an error uh, variable, and or and the, I think the thing is if you made extensive use of that, it tended to make the stored procs to me look almost a bit like some sort of VB script thing where we used to do you know on error resume next and after every single thing you do you were sort of checking the the, the value of the variable to see if something went wrong and a lot of stored procs end up looking like that today and I think the um, structured exception handling again allows you to write much cleaner looking code well I think a lot of people have advocated over the years using checking the value of that at error but I really like the transact abort setting instead, which... Actually, that's a good a one setting. to mention, because, uh, again, that's not well understood, I think. This is the set okay. exact abort on, yeah. Right. 
so that option changes the default behavior. Uh, basically, let me back up for a minute. In SQL Server, there are three primary types of exceptions that you can get. There are connection aborting exceptions, which basically ruin, uh, abort your whole connection to the server. And those are really, really fatal exceptions. And then one step below those are batch aborting exceptions. And these, uh, when you send requests to SQL Server, you can send them a batch at a time. So, for instance, you can send two select statements at once in the same batch or two updates or whatever. And a store procedure is one batch for the most part. Dynamic SQL changes that a little bit, but we won't get into that. So just assume that a store procedure is a single batch. If you hit certain exception types, it'll actually abort the whole store procedure. So if you're on an update, for instance, and there's another update after it, and the first update has an exception, the second update won't get hit, and your transaction will be rolled back and everything. But then you have these exceptions called statement aborting exceptions. And so let's say you're on an update and you hit a statement aborting exception. The next update is still going to run, and that can put your data into an inconsistent state. So what this set transact abort setting does is it turns the statement aborting exceptions into batch aborting exceptions. It upgrades them, and it rolls back your transaction if you hit any kind of exception. So instead of having to check the value of add error after every statement like we normally would, you just set transact abort on at the start of your store procedure, begin your transaction, run everything, and if you have any exception, it'll automatically be rolled back. Makes the code a lot cleaner, and that's how I do most of my work, personally. Yeah, that's great. The Actually, that, that's probably a good point. We'll take a break for a few minutes, and then after the break, we'll come back and talk about testing. Great. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track, or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. Okay, so welcome back from the break. Um, first thing, Adam, I might get you to just tell us anything about uh, where you live or family or sports or hobbies or anything that uh, you, you want to share that so people get to know you. Well, I live right outside of uh, Boston, Massachusetts, in a town called Somerville. And what can I say about Somerville? Somerville is uh, just a town. <laughs> Nothing too special, really. Uh Nice it's got a pleasant to name. So, yeah, it's uh, actually one of the most, um, I think, per square mile, per square mile. There's, I think, almost more people here than anywhere else in the country. So it's ah. extremely packed. It's uh, lots of um, lots of people living here. So it's a kind of interesting because it's a suburb, and you'd expect probably New York City to be the most populated place per square mile in the mm. country, yet Somerville is rivaling that right now, somehow. Okay. I'm not sure I'm not sure how that's possible, but um, 
anyway, it's a good place, and uh, I live mm-hmm. with my wife, Kate. We just got married, actually, in July, so that was nice. Excellent. And uh, for, hob- <laughs> for hobbies, uh, I like to brew beer. That's my hobby. Ah, so, that, so. so you'd be a good good mate for Kent Teagles. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Kent Kent, and I have Kent's very keen on beer. <laughs> yes, I am too. I like to brew beer and uh, I like to drink beer. <laughs> so uh, uh, those two go hand in hand, luckily enough. <laughs> so I have a uh, I have a cider actually uh, bubbling away here, right next to me, which Excellent. is uh, going to be ready next week next year. I make um, ten gallons of cider a year. Of uh, hard cider, two batches. So how so. how long does cider take to make? Uh, it takes about twenty minutes to make and a year to let it age until it's ready. Okay. I like to wait at least a year, sometimes two years. Um, and I put everything. I have a keg system, so I, mm-hmm. uh, I make it and I I leave it and let it ferment for about six months and then I transfer it to a keg. And let it sit there for at least six more months under pressure, and then it's ready Great. to drink. So, good stuff. Excellent. And at least you don't have to sit and watch it the whole time. Uh, so it's a <laughs> bubbles away all by itself for a year. So that's great. Because well, uh, I, I it presume ferments you... over. It ferments over in a corner of my office, so it gives me a nice mm-hmm. uh, bubbling sound once every thirty <laughs> seconds or so. Excellent. So, actually, well, next thing we were going to talk about um, was testing. And uh, yes. I must admit, in the application development areas, uh, people seem to be getting their head around unit testing and things like that more and more by the day. But it's an area in SQL Server I see very, very little of any of this happening. Yes, that's uh, kind of a sad state of affairs. Um, a lot of DBAs I talk to don't know anything at all about unit testing, what it is, what its goals are. They kind of have a vague idea of testing in general. And unit testing, the goal of unit testing is to do repeatable tests on, and I'll get back to this once again, interfaces. So Mm -hmm. if you have a store procedure, you want to guarantee that the store procedure's interface, that is its inputs, and its outputs don't change. So that if you have an application that's depending on those inputs and outputs, the the contract that we were talking about before, you want to make sure that that application will always be able to use those inputs and outputs the right way, and that any other applications that you write against that same interface will also be able to abide by that same contract. So a lot of uh, store procedure testing done by DBAs is really just one-off testing. When you write the store procedure, you're going to pass in a couple parameters, make sure you get some data back. Okay, it looks good. Ship it. But unit testing is really a lot more structured and a lot more aimed at writing tests that can be repeated lots of times. And when I say lots of times, I mean preferably multiple times a day. In in a lot of cases, uh, there's this idea of continuous integration that's really popular right now. And this is where people are, they actually have servers 24 hours a day just running unit tests. And any time the application changes, it'll almost immediately be unit tested automatically. And you'll find out if you broke anything. And that's really mm. the goal of all this, is to find out 
before we go into production whether we've broken something. Because all too often, you ship something to production, and then 10 minutes later, you get the, the dreaded phone call. The system is down. You know, and then you have the, this big kind of firefighting mode that you get into, and you're trying to fix everything really fast, and you don't have time, and you're stressed. And it's a bad situation, and something I would rather not repeat again in my life, if possible. So... <laughs> Actually, I think one of the, the challenges with uh, testing in databases compared to apps, with uh, with apps, most most procedures in applications don't tend to have a permanent effect. They, they'll have something where uh, you can pass a, a series of parameters and it, it ends up returning some value. But I think one of the things in database applications is that if we run some procedure, what it's going to do is end up modifying something in the database and so to realistically rerun that test, you you really need to get the database back in the same state as it was to, to be able to sort of run the proc again to, to do the same test. And uh, I think that's one of the things that people tend to find a bit of a challenge with database testing. And uh, I've even seen test rigs where people end up Starting the test suite by, you know, restoring the database from a backup or something like that. But, but that can make it a fairly long testing procedure compared to what you can do in many applications. Well, I don't think that's necessary all the time. Uh, I mm-hmm. think testing against known data is definitely valuable. And if you're running very specific tests, it's necessary, actually. But in a lot of cases, when we write unit tests, we're really concerned, again, with interfaces and just making sure that those contracts don't, didn't break in some way. Yeah. So we really don't care as much about what's in the database or about the data. What we really, Because we know that in production, that data is going to change, right? Mm-hmm. So what we want to verify isn't that we get necessarily the results that we're expecting, but that we're getting the results in the format that we're expecting so that the mm-hmm. application can deal with them. Because we know that the application is set up to deal with lots of different types of results. But the application is respecting, is sorry, expecting them in the same format. And if that breaks, that's when we know that we've caused a major problem. And so yeah. that's when you'll a lot of times ship something to production and suddenly you'll start getting uh, conversion errors or something in the application because the store procedure is suddenly returning the data in maybe uh, big int instead of int. Someone had to change for some reason. Oops, mm. forgot to test that. And that's that's the kind of problems that I think unit testing is really useful at, at finding. Mm-hmm. Now, in, in the session you did at the past conference, you also had discussion on sort of white box testing and also some macros and things that you had uh, had produced. Uh, yes, I think not all exceptions can be tracked down, as I said, with unit testing. Uh, if they could be, we probably wouldn't have quality assurance departments in our companies. A lot of exceptions are internal or are not of the nature of interface exceptions. So interface exceptions that we look at with unit testing, and that's kind of a black box test. The unit test what's going on inside the store procedure. doesn't care what's going on. All it knows is you pass in something, 
in one format, and you get it back in format. Both formats are known to us. That's all we know. Now, a white box test, on the other hand, is a test where we know what's going on inside, and we're actually testing the internals, and that's really kind of a form of debugging. So what I found, I worked for a while as a C++ developer, and I found that in C++ world, a lot of people were using uh, these things called assertions. So what an assertion is, is a special statement that you can put into your code, and you are declaring a certain condition to be true at that point in the code. So, for mm -hmm. instance, I can say, I assert that at this point in the code, this variable must be equal to this value. And if that variable is not equal to that value, it'll throw an assertion failure. And what the assertion failure does is it raises a very high-level exception and stops the code right there. So that if you're debugging the code, you immediately find out when something's wrong. And this is an internal test because you actually put these assertions inside the code at various points where you have logical assumptions that you're making. So it's a way of kind of documenting your assumptions in your code and automatically testing them as you're debugging and as you're running the code and as you're going through quality assurance. So this is something you turn on during debugging and you turn off when you roll to production because two reasons. One, the application code might be set up to deal with some of the problems in the real world, so you don't want uh, end users getting a bunch of these assertion failures. And two, they can cause performance problems if you're continually testing lots of different conditions. So I realized uh, that nothing like this existed in the SQL Server world. So what I did was I rolled my own, and I ended up with a library called T-SQL Assert, and in order to create that, I actually had to write another library first called T-SQL Macro, which is a macro framework. And this lets you define kind of uh, code expansion macros in your SQL code. And again, you can write complex testing logic in these macros and then programmatically turn them on or off. So I think uh, I'm pretty happy with the results. And... Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to <laughs> convince others of the, to start using this stuff and, and get some testing done. Yeah. Now, you have those available for download from your site? Uh, yes, it's on datamanipulation.net forward slash T-SQL macro. And so datamanipulation.net uh, forward slash T-SQL macro. Yep. Yes. And there's a bunch of... Um, documentation and descriptions about how to use the thing and you can download it and give me a bug report all that stuff I've only gotten one bug report so far so I'm pretty disappointed in the user community <laughs> well either I'm yeah. disappointed in the user community or I've done a great job I'm not sure which <laughs> that's left to be seen that's great actually the other one that we didn't mention was T-SQL unit Yes, well, that's the um, T-SQL unit testing framework. And I don't remember the gentleman's name who wrote it off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's actually been around since 2002, I believe. 
and I don't think it's gotten a whole lot of use, but I think it's a great toolkit, and basically in .NET and Java programming, you have these frameworks called J, uh, NUnit for .NET and JUnit for Java. Mm-hmm. And so what this guy did was he created a very similar framework for T-SQL called T-SQL Unit. So this lets you write tests, which you could do anyway, but what it lets you do is run tests in a very easy, very automated way, and it handles all the reporting for you. So it logs all your tests, and you can uh, tell it, I want to log these things for the test, and I want to run these tests, and it basically gives you a framework for controlling all that. So it's a good thing to use, and when I was actually writing T-SQL assert, I was thinking about T-SQL unit at the same time, because these Java and .NET frameworks have assertion frameworks built into them to help developers more easily write their unit tests. That wasn't in T-SQL unit, so again, I think these all go hand in hand. Yeah. That's great. Well, listen, that's most interesting, Adam. The... Uh the other thing I suppose we should find out is just what else is coming up in your world uh, at the moment. So, uh, in terms of travel and things, or presentations, or books, or anything on the go, I, I um, uh, was really great to get to meet up with you when um, we had the past conference. It was uh, for uh, for the listeners. Uh, one of the things that was different this year is the the MVP summit. Uh, Ended up uh, clashing time-wise with the uh, with the past summit, and so the uh, the SQL MVP summit ended up being co-located with the past conference down in Dallas. And uh, I, I thought it was an interesting experiment this year because normally at the MVP summit you only get everybody there for a couple of days. But uh, what tended to happen this time is uh, an awful lot of people arrived probably on the Sunday and, and were there almost right through till the next Sunday in many cases. And uh, it was kind of a really interesting mixture of people where you had uh, mo- most of the SQL MVPs there plus a lot of the product group folk plus a whole lot of folk uh, uh, who were there for the past summit as well. So it was a really big, interesting mixture of people. Uh, what were your thoughts there yourself? Well, this was my first time at both PASS and the MVP summit. So uh, mm-hmm. I kind of went in with wide eyes and took it all in, had a good time, um, found that the Europeans like to drink a lot, and uh, <laughs> yes. I'm not so, sure, not so sure about you Australians, but uh, mm-hmm. I didn't see you guys partying quite as much. I was a little disappointed, Yeah, but maybe that's uh, not. <laughs> I, I, you know, I think you guys need to uh, have a drinking contest against the Europeans and prove who are the better drinkers. I think that would be an important experiment and would really That's lead good. to a better understanding <laughs> of our uh, interpersonal relationships. That's great. So, anyway. so what's, com- what's coming up in your world? Um, well, uh, my the book I co-authored just came out, uh, Pro SQL Server 2005. I'd like everyone to go buy that right now. Just yeah, and that's Pro SQL Server 2005. <laughs> that's on A Press. Yes, it is. And yes. I wrote the sections on SQL CLR programming and um, T SQL for DBAs. So mm-hmm. I think uh, 
I'm pretty happy with what I wrote, so I hope uh, other people will be. And we had some other great people on the project. Uh, Tom Rizzo, product manager for SQL Server, uh, wrote the bulk of the book, actually. And uh, Lewis Davidson, another SQL Server MVP, wrote the yes, section in fact, I, uh, on... Uh, Lewis was there with us at uh, at the conference, and in fact, we must get Lewis on the show sometime soon. Yeah. So he wrote the section on T-SQL, so I'm sure that's going to be excellent as well. And uh, other than that, just doing a lot of writing and have uh, actually an article on the macro and assertion frameworks will be coming up in the December issue of SQL Server Professional magazine, if anyone's interested in a little more information on those. Great. So. Well, listen. Thank you again, Adam, and uh, thank you, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. This was fun. Appreciate it. Great. Thank you.